Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and politics. Uh, SALT Talks are a series of digital interviews we've been doing during this work from home period in lieu of our global conference series, the SALT Conference, uh, to provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts who are leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we also try to do with SALT Talks is provide a platform for big, important, uh, world-changing ideas that we think are relevant to our audience. Uh, we're very excited today to welcome Brad Thor to SALT Talks. Uh, Brad is a novelist, and he's a number one New York Times bestselling author of 20 thrillers, including his most recent book, Near Dark. Uh, some of his other uh, books include Backlash, which was named one of Suspense Magazine's best books of the year, Spy Master, uh, which was, quote, one of the all-time best thriller novels uh, as written by the Washington Times. There's The Last Patriot, which, which was nominated as best thriller of the year by the International Thriller Writers Association. Uh, Blowback, which was named one of the top 100 uh, killer thrillers of all time by NPR. And the first book in the Scott Harvath series, The Lions of Lucerne, which was, quote, one of the best political thrillers ever, according to Barnes & Noble. Uh, Brad is not only a novelist, but he's also appeared on several uh, major media outlets, including ABC, CBS, NBC, PBS, Fox, and CNN, among many others. Uh, he discusses terrorism, as well as how closely his novels of international intrigue actually follow uh, real threats that are facing the world today. Uh, Brad has also served as a member of the Department of Homeland Security's Analytic Red Cell Unit, and he's also lectured uh, law enforcement organizations on on the horizon and future threats that are facing the country and the world. He's been a keynote speaker at the National Tactical Officers Association Annual Conference. In 2008, Brad shadowed a black ops team in Afghanistan in preparation for uh, researching one of his thrillers, The Apostle. Uh, Brad graduated cum laude from the University of Southern California, where he uh, studied creative writing, film, and television production. And prior to becoming a novelist, he was the award-winning creator, producer, and writer, and host of the critically acclaimed national public television series, Traveling Light. As a reminder to everyone watching today, if you have any uh, questions for Brad during today's SALT talk, you can enter them at the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And hosting today's interview is Anthony Scaramucci, who I know is very excited about this interview. Brad is one of his favorite authors, and I, I know that he's either uh, almost finished or, or he's picked up uh, Brad's new book, Near Dark. Anthony is the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm, as well as the chairman of SALT. Uh, and with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. So, hey, John, and thank you, Brad. Thanks for being here. I'm going to hold up the book. Phenomenal book. And I actually did finish this. I got in trouble last week. So I had Daniel Silva on, and I, I hadn't finished the last four chapters. So I had to make sure I finished it this weekend. But it's a phenomenal book. And once again, you're right on it in terms of what's going on in our society and uh, it's a fascinating book. I recommend it to everybody. But I want to go to the, the back behind the, the backstory, behind that amazing biography of yours. So give us a little more color on your personal ground. Where did you grow up? What did your parents do? How did you make the transition into being the brilliant novelist that you are? Well, thanks. And thanks for having me, Anthony. I appreciate being here and you sharing me with the SALT audience today. Um, I grew up in Chicago. My dad was a Marine and my mom was a flight attendant for TWA in the glamour days in the 60s when travel really was elegant. Uh, my dad uh, was in the Marine Corps for a while and used the GI Bill to go to college. The Marines were his ticket out of the south side of Chicago. 
and uh, he graduated, went to uh, went to work in real estate uh, for a big developer named Arthur Rubloff in Chicago. Arthur developed a ton of stuff in Chicago. My dad basically carried Arthur's briefcase and learned everything from Rubloff. And then my dad started a firm. He still got it. He's still going uh, called Code and Construction Consultants. And he goes in and works for owners. Will go in works for REITs, all kinds of stuff. You may be developing an office building, a hotel, renovating an office building or a hotel, and he represents, truly represents the owner in making sure that they are getting the best materials, the best labor at the best prices. You know, he puts out RFPs and, you know, 20 subs will come in, 20 electrical contractors will come in and goes through everything. I mean, when I was 16, my dad wanted me to see what the family business was and took me on a job meeting out in San Francisco. And I remember they were negotiating down to how much door hinges cost. And could they attic stock certain things on the site so that they could guarantee the price would not go up for the for the developer and all this stuff? So I learned a lot about negotiating from my dad. My mom was an entrepreneur as well. She became an executive recruiter. So uh, I learned a lot growing up to never rest on your laurels. Always treat every day in your office as if it's the first day on the job. And it could be your last if you don't give it everything. And never take your customers for granted. And probably the biggest thing that I take from all that is, I say this in all my book events, Anthony, which is I don't work for the publisher. I work for the readers. Those are my bosses. And when they leave reviews or give a colleague a book at work or a family member one of my books, that's my annual performance review. So I always want those five stars or somebody say, try this Thor book. Uh, and that I get from my upbringing uh, in the Midwest. That's great. You, you, you have a writing style that's been dubbed faction. When I read your books, I feel like I'm reading a presidential daily briefing. And so let's talk a little bit about that. How did you develop that knack? And uh, is it from your travel? Is it from your relationships in Washington, intelligence services? How did you develop that knack? It's, it's a little bit of everything. So I'm in the entertainment business. My job is to give you escape. I want you to keep flipping those pages. Probably one of the nicest introductions I get when I do media stuff is, ladies and gentlemen, it's because of our next guest that I didn't get any sleep last night. Right, know? exactly. I wanted to read a little bit of this Thor book, and before I knew it, it was 4 a.m. My eyes were bleeding. I couldn't believe that I shut it. Great book. Um, so my style has developed and improved over the years. Uh, being a Midwesterner, I always want to do better than last time. Um, there was a great book called uh, The Content Trap a couple of years ago, and it said one of the biggest mistakes entrepreneurs make when they're trying to grow their, uh, their client base is to improve the product. And you may do little tweaks with the screwdriver uh, that the client never sees, the customer never sees, but that's not where increasing the customer base lies. And I thought that was very interesting because I'm a perfectionist at heart. I want to get better. I'm 20 novels in, and as you and I have talked about before, my thrillers are like the James Bond movies. You don't have to have ever read a Brad Thor book before to jump into the, to the latest one. But I'm always trying to go a little bit further outside my comfort zone, get better as an author. Uh, so that means I'm reading books on writing all year long. And um, I think Stephen King had one of the best pieces of advice, which is to write the kinds of books you love to read, because that's where your passion is. And for me, uh, I add on to that, that you probably have a mini PhD in that genre if you've been reading there for a long time. You know what books you like, what books you don't like, and all that kind of stuff. So I know I compete with Netflix, I compete with the internet, all that kind of stuff. So my chapters 
have to be short, crisp, cinematic. Each one has to end with a cliffhanger so that people want to go to the next one. That's the definition of a page turner. And so over the years, I've realized that attention spans have probably gotten a little bit shorter. We've taught people not to wait a week for the next episode in the series. You can binge everything right now. So it's just kind of my business acumen that I got from my parents is how do I, how do I compete? How do I compete? It's not only how do I compete, how do I win? And I win by being more entertaining than anything else I'm competing with. Because it takes a lot of self-discipline to sit down, start a book, and finish it. So I want to make that process as easy as possible. Well, there's no question. I, I, I was going to say every time I get to the end of something, I'm like, oh, man, and I got to go again. <laughs> so you're very, very good at that. Um, but you, you, you've also captured something which I think is very unique. This Scott Harvath I'd like you and your words to describe him to people that have never met him before. I've met him 16 out of the 19 times. I've got three more I've got to read. But I want you to describe him for us. And then secondarily, how many of him, or how many Scott Harvest are there in the United States working for the United States right now? So Scott Harvath is my protagonist. Uh, Harvath grew up in Southern California. His dad was a SEAL. And he was very rebellious. He got into skiing like a lot of my Southern California friends do. Crazy. You wouldn't think of kids growing up in L.A. and San Diego skiing, but they do ski, uh, whether they go to Big Bear or wherever. And Harvath ends up deciding he doesn't want to go to college, and he's got a shot with the U.S. ski team. His old man hates that. His dad ends up dying in a training accident as a SEAL instructor, and Harvath decides, I no longer have the will to compete uh, uh, in professional sports. There's, there's a greater calling for me. He decides to go finish his college degree, gets into the Navy, becomes a SEAL himself, ends up distinguishing himself. He works his way up to SEAL Team 6, distinguishes himself on a presidential detail where the president was appearing by water. Uh, comes into the White House and the president, then president in my book says, this guy is too good to have on defense just trying to bolster our counterterrorism expertise. We need to let this guy off the chain and go after the bad guys. And one of the questions that, or kind of the debates, Anthony, as you've seen in my books over the years, is we have these things called the Geneva and Hague Conventions. And basically, they set out the Marcus of Queensberry rules for warfare, that if you're going to be a lawful combatant, you at least have to show up on the battlefield with an armband. You can't hide behind women and children and blow, you know, put bombs in cars so that when soldiers go by, you can clap off and kill them. Um, so there's been this debate about what does it mean for the United States to abide by rules when certain enemies won't. And I think one of the reasons that Jack Bauer, Kiefer Sutherland, and 24 were so successful is we all want to have some heavies on the side of the United States. We believe we're the heroes in our own story. I believe that too. I think this is the greatest nation in the history of the world. We're very fortunate to live here. What are we willing to do to protect American lives? And so if you're willing to suspend the rules or to kind of turn a blind eye to rules being broken, if it meant, means the bad guys can be caught and dealt with, well, then you have to ask, what kind of person do you send out? Who do you trust to break the rules? Because it can't be somebody that breaks the rules only because they're a sadist. It's got to be somebody that if they bend or break the rules, it's for a greater good. And I don't take a side on that, actually. It's, it's very interesting because you'll have different politicians or different spies or special operations people talking about it. This is a big thing for Marcus Luttrell and Lone Survivor. I've had the great honor of becoming friends with Marcus. And this was the big debate, if you read the book or saw the movie, when the goat herders stumbled across that four-man SEAL team what do we do with these guys? If we kill them, we're going to go to Leavenworth. If we tie them up to a tree overnight, 
Well, the wolves are going to eat them. And that's just as bad as killing them. If we let them go, we may die. And in fact, three of them died and Marcus barely made it out. So this question about what we should be allowed to do vis-a-vis what our enemies, you know, if they don't have a, if they don't have a rule book, should we have one? How many rules, how many pages can we peel out of our rule book if we really want to be effective against these people? So that's a continuing theme, but that's who Harvath is, is really this guy that is trusted to go out there and make the right calls. And maybe eh, we don't want to know what he does as long as he gets the job done sort of a thing. And so how many people are like that in our uh, intelligence community? Not enough. Not enough. Uh, we, have, we have some incredibly brave men and women. The majority of people at the CIA, DIA, NSA, we have amazing, amazing people. We have some kind of messed up uh, structures within there. You know, we're not policing, particularly on the intel side, people like uh, Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden, reality winner. You know, we're getting these young 20-somethings in there that are willing to expose some of the, the most sensitive secrets in the United States because they've got this woke kind of social justice attitude, which is completely incompatible with the job they're being asked to do. We, we don't want to know what their personal uh, feelings are about what the government is doing. If you really think something's bad, I've always said, you could go to Rand Paul in a heartbeat and say, Senator Paul, I discovered this and this bad thing is happening and then let Rand Paul help yes. you work it so, up. You so just, so more, of a process of, more of a process of following the whistleblower rules as opposed to becoming a rogue operator is what you're saying. Yeah. And you know what? And I probably shouldn't even put Snowden into that category because everybody right now that's listening and watching this knows what Snowden looks like. There's no way he was dating a stripper in Hawaii. I'm telling you that I have I have all these feelings about Snowden, and then he runs to runs over to the Chinese, and the Chinese are like, oh, okay, well we'll give him to the Russians, and a lot of that just doesn't feel right to me. But this idea of vomiting up intelligence because you don't like what the United States is doing, I agree, is it's not a good thing, it's not safe, and I also think you know. I, I, I didn't like the Chelsea Manning sentence. The rest of the sentence got commuted and all this kind of stuff. We have not made a strong enough example of one of these people so that it doesn't happen again. And when it comes to secrets, that's one of the, the it takes so long to develop the intelligence that we have that it can be given away like that. It's a, we need to make sure that doesn't happen. Well, I mean, you just give you my feedback, not that it's worth anything, but when I was in the White House, albeit for that very short period of time, you learn very quickly how complex these issues are. And you learn very quickly that if it's in the White House, it's a very hard decision because Mm -hmm. 5,000 other people, Brad, would have made the decision. And so now it's filtering up to the president. And then you find out that there's so much complexity. And frankly, you've got your ideals and you've got American lives at stake. and You've got this whole soup that you have to live in. So you do- And no certainty. I know no, it's, it's 80% certainty, 90, if you yeah, even get well, that, that high, was, it's That really was the 100. bin Laden raid, you know, it was very yep. uncertain, the bin Laden and raid. And the bounties, and the Russian bounties on American troops, most recently, that made it into the PDB, and the certainty level was high enough that we shared it with the Brits. So it's very rare you get a, we're 100%, but the bin Laden right. raid is, and if you watch Zero Dark Thirty, that whole debate back and forth, yes. what level of certainty do we have, that's right on the money. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this makes the things very complicated. You do a very good job of sifting through that. Again, I feel like I'm reading an intelligence briefing when I'm going through your stuff. So let's talk about that. Okay. You do extensive research on global terrorism. What are the greatest threats right now facing the United States? I don't want to give away your plot here, but just talk existentially and talk generally. Right. So the worst actors are the ones you always hear. It's Russia, China, and Iran with North Korea in fourth place. 
Um, one of, I pivoted a while ago off of Islamic terrorism because I kind of got the feeling that I, there were other things that were bubbling up that were of concern. One of the biggest, obviously, being the annexation of Crimea by Russia, which got the Russians tossed out of the G8, brought it down to the G7. But one of the biggest things people don't think about why we tossed the Russians and why that was such a big deal is because when the Soviet Union broke apart, about a third of their nuke arsenal was in Ukraine. And we guaranteed as the United States, the Ukrainians, that if you decommission, if you get, let us help you get rid of those nukes, we will guarantee the integrity of your sovereign territory. We'll make sure that you don't get invaded, it doesn't get gobbled off. And the Ukrainians said to us, sounds good, can you get the Russians to sign that piece of paper too? And we're like, okay, for what it's worth, yeah, we'll get the Russians to sign it. And then what happened, Putin, invaded under the Obama administration, and they rightfully got thrown out of the G8, but that was kind of it. So we didn't live up to it. It was almost like that little slice of Czechoslovakia, or little slice, it's a substantial slice of Czechoslovakia being given away to Hitler when Hitler said, oh, I just want to protect ethnic Germans, the Sudetenland. So there's really, it's, there's that famous quote, I think it was Fukuyama, that said that history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. And so I started looking at what does a revanchist Russia look like? Now, we've been in Afghanistan, we've been in Iraq for a long time, and Putin wants to gobble back up all of, you know, old Soviet Russia. So if Putin chose to, the RAND Corporation, for instance, did a study, if Putin moved on Latvia, Lithuania, or Estonia, the three Baltic members of NATO, how quick could he do it? Could we get it back? Would it succeed? They ran the simulation something like a thousand times and switched generals, top U.S. generals from red team to blue team. Putin won every single time. And it's amazing because if they take Gotland, the island off of Sweden, and they put their, uh, their air defense batteries on Gotland, we will not be able to get ships into the Baltic. Uh, we won't be able to fly planes there because of Russian air superiority on that side of the Baltic. And the biggest quirky thing that I learned in my novel from my novel Spymaster, Anthony, was that if we want to move men and material from Germany or Poland up into those, into that area, the railroad gauge changes. You actually have to remove the equipment from one train, put it on another, and the Russians have all of those transit points marked for sabotage. So it's basically impossible to win. And as you know, the NATO charter, Article 5, says an attack on one is an attack on all. So we would have to go and defend those members. But there's a lot of Americans that are tired of war, couldn't find one of those Baltic places on a map if their life depended on it, and probably wouldn't want to send their sons or daughters there. So as I look at this as a thriller writer, I say, okay, this is fertile ground because what in my fictional world would a president do to ever even get called into war in that part of the world? What might he allow my fictional character and his teammates to do? And that's been some of the fun that I've been having in the novels lately. Yeah, no, look, it's a nonstop uh, 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 thriller read and it's, it's very insightful. Again, I don't want to give away the plot, but, but I want to ask you this about NATO because I think it's very important for the Americans, and certainly you've thought about this, the global alliance, the post-World War II order was set up to be offensive and defensive, and its primary responsibility in Europe was to contain communism. You could say it was a global responsibility if you factor in the Korean and Vietnam War. Uh, and we're here now in a post-communist era, if you will, because these countries are not really operating in pure communism anymore. Uh, is, is NATO obsolete? Does NATO need to be refreshed? And, and if it needs to be refreshed, do we need to protect those nations? Is that important? Is that in our global and national interest? Uh, I'm not an isolationist, I might add. So, so and I, there's reasons why, but 
no one wants to hear my opinion. They want to hear yours. So what do you, so, so what do you think? I think NATO, NATO is critical, and I absolutely think NATO should continue to go on. NATO, by its own, any, any measure, NATO has been a huge success. We have not had another global war since World War II, and that's, that's thanks in large part to NATO. Communism or no communism, I think it's really important because regardless of what the ideological subscription is of Russia, look at they took the Crimean Peninsula. They would take more if they could. So I think it's very important. So I why aren't they taking those those Baltic states, if you, a hundred, a thousand times out of a thousand, they could take them, why wouldn't they just take them? I think there's a lot of, a, I think while the military option is very difficult for us, I think there's a lot of financial, there's a lot of different things we could do to the Russians if they did make that move. I think there's a lot of damage we could cause and it doesn't necessarily have to be with dropping bombs on them. So I think that's number one. Um, this, this issue of the NATO members not living up to their 2% of GDP to be invested in their own military, uh, I think is a, is a big issue. And I think if, if you have nations that are not contributing what they've said they're going to contribute, that's a problem. I don't like the public fights over that stuff. I'm not a fan of that. I think behind the scenes, there's more we should be doing to get them to meet that standard. But I still think NATO is one of the most, pro it's probably more, absolutely one of the top, if not the top, military alliance ever created in history. And I think it's very important and should stay. And by the way, that Article 5, an attack on one is an attack on all, has only been, that, that, you know, that lever's only been pulled once, and it was by us, the United yep. States, after 9-11. And we went into Afghanistan. Yep. Well, I mean, just one, one thing I want to bring up and I want to get your reaction to because I think it's, it's interesting. You know, George Marshall, there was a biography written about him, obviously, with Dean Axon, the father of the Marshall Plan. He was a Truman Secretary of State after being the chief of staff for Roosevelt of the Army. When NATO was slipping in terms of their percentages, he said to his fellow teammates, if you will, let it happen. We, we want to be the military superior nation on this planet for as long as possible. It was his belief that we were a benevolent democracy and the less military out there, the less potentiality of use of military, even if it was among our allies who during the Second World War, frankly, were our enemies. So it's just, it's an interesting concept about where we sit in the global spectrum. Um, but I do agree with you. There's a lot of things the United States could do to Russia. Although with Russia having the GDP of Italy, uh, to be this much of a force uh, tells you that we're doing something wrong in terms of containing them in a more appropriate way. But let, let's go to my next question. Then I got to turn it over to John Darcy, who once again has been bested in the room rating because he has all this fake interior designing going on. I mean, <laughs> if you've never seen like a more room rating overbite than John Darcy, I don't know what there is. Okay. You've got all that natural stuff going on behind you. So once again, John, in assault talk, you've been trumped by one of our guests. But I want to ask this last question, and then I'll turn it over to John. Do you have a favorite among the books that you've written? Something that really say, wow, you, you closed the manuscript, you shipped it off to the publisher, and say, that's my, that's my opus. You know what? Everyone is different, and everyone was a challenge. Everyone's been harder. You'd think doing 20 books, it'd get easier. It doesn't. That's just part of my nature. I consider myself a small business person. I'm only as good as the last thing I've written because that's the highest the bar's ever been for me personally. And I always say my favorite book is next year's book because that's the one I'm writing right now. That's the one I'm super passionate about. Have so it you sounds started like, next year's book? Right? Yeah. 
I have. Okay. I have. And by the way, Anthony, for the, for the benefit of those who are watching, the one thing I can tell you is the current book, Near Dark, if it was a movie poster, the log line would be a $100 million bounty has just been put on the head of America's top spy. That's really what Near Dark is about. My guy, $100 million bounty on his head, can't trust anyone, reluctantly has to trust one person, and it, it's a, it bounces all around the world. No, it, it's fascinating. And, and, uh, and I don't want to give it, the ending is even more fascinating than the beginning. So I'm holding it up again. I'm going to turn it over to John Brad. He's got questions. You've got a lot of fans out there that are coming in uh, asking questions. So go ahead, Mr. Dorsey. Yeah, we have a lot of questions, a lot of engagement on today's talk. And Brad, thanks again for joining us. So as I mentioned in the open, you embedded yourself uh, in Afghanistan in 2008 with a black ops team. And authenticity is obviously very important to your work. And mm -hmm. some of our viewers want to know, why is that authenticity so important? And what was that experience like in Afghanistan? So first of all, I think that the details are a the bedrock of a good thriller. And you've got to get those right. Uh, my wife, if she picks up a book, she'll finish the book no matter what. I'm, you, get, you get maybe two strikes with me. If you put a safety on a Glock, that's a big strike against you. You've only got one more after that. And I will put a book down and not pick it back up. Um, I think that's just, that, that, there's no reason not to do your homework. You have the internet for God's sake. You know, poor Clancy, I don't know how he got the details he got for Hunt for Red October, the libraries and places he must have haunted forever to write that novel without uh, the benefit of the internet the way we have it today. So details are really important. Um, the Afghanistan trip was amazing. Uh, I got told two, th three things. Make sure all your life insurance is paid up, get in good shape and grow the biggest beard you can. Uh, got to Kabul and one of the guys said, do you have any sunglasses? I'm like, yeah, I got my sunnies with me. He's like, let me see those. He takes and puts them in his pocket. He goes, you get those back at the end of the trip. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, nothing marks a Westerner from a distance like a pair of sunglasses. So it was really these little, like little things. And John, that's what I was interested in is they were going out and building human networks, gathering intelligence. Uh, one of the, so the best fried chicken I ever had was in Jalalabad, best ever. And uh, the other thing that was really interesting was learning. I, I spoke about with Anthony, Marcus Luttrell and uh, Lone Survivor and how those Afghans protected Marcus. Well, that's based on something called Pashtun Wali, which is their code of honor. And every village I went with this team to, we already had permission of the village, village elders to be there as their guest. Because what happens is, is if you're their guest, they will fight to the last man and boy in that village to keep you alive. It's, I mean, I always joke, try to find somebody to help you change a tire on the way to the airport in the rain when you're off to the side of the road. It doesn't happen. So here's this incredible code of honor there. The people were fantastic. So it was great. But just even little things, like it'd be on and off fobs. And, you know, they'd have pallets of water. And you grab a case of water and throw it in the back of the truck. Just the little, little color details that you had to be there to pick up. Um, it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So, uh, I, and that all went into my thriller, The Apostle. Next question is about what type of books and authors do you read and have any in particular inspired your style as a writer? So I grew up grabbing whatever book my parents had just finished and set down. I would, I would mark, I would watch my dad or my mom and they read Le Carre, Ludlum, Freddie Forsyth, Clancy. And no sooner had that book hit the coffee table or the nightstand that I come and swipe it. And I'd read those books myself. So those were really good, those great Cold War books, because they dealt not only with uh, 
kind of the, the turmoil in private lives and the spies themselves, but the overarching global politics and why these things mattered, why the successful accomplishment of a mission was critical to the future of the West and things like this. So uh, I've always loved the tension between spies in government or war fighters in government, because as long as we have gathered together in tribes and picked up rocks and sharpened sticks to go, you know, get our women back or, you know, take back the crops that the other tribes stole from us, there's been politics involved. So that intersection for me is fascinating and it creates some real dynamic tension that uh, can lend itself to the excitement in a thriller. So we have a couple questions that I'll sort of aggregate into one about your own writing process. So you talked about how you don't really create a, a universal arc for your character, Scott Harvath, and you don't have a destination in mind for him. You're really taking current events, weaving them into different stories that you're writing about that character. What is your, your uh, individual writing process like? How do you write? Where do you write? And, and what's that challenge like in terms of crafting a new narrative, like a, a Bond movie, as you mentioned, uh, with each book that you write? So great question. So like I said, I've done 20 novels. It does not get any easier. I'm not an outliner. Uh, Dan Brown, who wrote Da Vinci Code, is a buddy of mine. And Dan at one point shared with me the outline for Da Vinci Code, which was really cool because Dan is like a mega outliner. And I got to see all the things that didn't make it into the final novel, which is kind of neat to see like a highlight reel or something, everything that ended up on the cutting room floor. It was very cool. He had some cool stuff he was planning for that. Um, so I'm not an outliner. I really believe in the quote from Robert Frost that says, no joy in the writer, no joy in the reader, no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader. So I want to have the same experience writing the novel that you do reading it. I want my palms to sweat. I want my heart to pound. And a lot of times I, I specialize in absolutely sticking it to myself. I paint myself into corners all the time. And I'll go home at night and my wife can tell by the expression on my face if it's a red wine night or a bourbon night, how badly I've put myself in a corner. And she always says, don't worry, you'll figure it out tomorrow. That's what makes my job hard, John. That's what makes it challenging. But that's also what makes it so rewarding because if my job was easy, it'd be boring. And I don't have the kind of brain and personality that deals well with boredom. I constantly have to have stuff going on. So, um, you know, I've got kids that get up in the morning in the before times, we get them off to school, breakfast and everything. I'm a big health nut, so I'm working out six days a week and then I'm in the office early. And I treat it, you know, eight to six because I have a family. I wanna be home for dinner with my kids and that kind of a thing. But it, listen, this business is seat of pants to seat of chair. And Jack London was famous for saying, you can't wait for inspiration. You have to go after it with a club, particularly if you're putting out a novel a year like I am. So it really is about mental toughness and discipline and paying attention to the details. It's, you know, the old thing, watch the pennies and the pounds watch themselves. Any business where you're going to be successful, you have to be a detail person because if you're not watching the details, you're not going to build a successful product. You're not going to build a successful company. So the same things you see in the world of finance, wherever it might be, whether you're a hedge fund manager, uh, whether you're just doing M&As constantly, it really is attention to detail and self-discipline. It's the key for, to success no matter what your business is. So 19 of your 20 novels uh, cover the character we've been speaking about, Scott Harvath. Uh, you have one uh, that covers a, a band of female intelligence officers and special operations forces. And we have a question about other minor characters that show up in your books that people seem to be uh, infatuated with, Scott Coleman, Nicholas being another. Do you see yourself branching out of that Scott Harvath series? We had uh, 
Daniel Silva on last week, and he sort of fell into the Gabrielle Alon series because it was so popular, sort of what you talked about with Scott Harvath. You didn't intend to make it a, a serialized uh, stories about that character specifically, but what do you see as your future as a novelist in terms of the characters that you write about? Well, so it's a great question. So I've got about 60% male readership, 40% female readership, and that female readership is going up. So we came at this book with, uh, and I probably have the mirror image up, the way Anthony did it looked a lot better, but we had this really cool like foil cover that catches the light and it's got Mont Saint-Michel on the cover, which is one of my favorite destinations. I've always wanted to put it in a novel. I finally got to do it with this one because it was just the right story for that location in France. Um, so what I challenged myself to do with this book was I wanted to create a female character to go with Scott Harvath that was just as good, maybe better than Harvath. And in the real, so she works for the Norwegian intelligence service. She's a spy for lack of a better term for Norway. Uh, in real life, the Norwegians have an all female special forces team that's called Jaeger. The, when they were being created, it was called Tundra. That was the code name for them. And uh, I created her, she gets in there, she, she joins up, she gets, they turn her down, turn her down, turn her down. She works harder and harder and harder, gets in, gets onto the special forces team. And there's not enough action for her. They're putting her in Afghanistan to go talk to the wives of Taliban guys and all this kind of stuff. And she's like, no, I signed up for what the men get. I want to kick indoors and shoot bad guys in the face. And she ends up leaving and joins the Norwegian intelligence service. There happens to be a kind of a Mandarin who's there to get her right at the right moment. And so I've done almost this reboot of the franchise where maybe Harvath's not going to go back to what he's doing. He may run off with this woman and they may have, they may do operations together, which is kind of fun. Um, but yeah, Nicholas is a, is a great uh, person. God bless whoever asked about Scott Coleman. That's a Mitch Rapp, Vince Flynn character. Okay. Uh, and I, and I'm a big fan of the, of the Mitch Rapp books, by the way. And it's funny because Vince Flynn, God rest his soul, gave me one of my first blurbs and um, Kyle Mills is writing the Mitch Flynn, uh, or the Mitch Flynn, now I'm screwing it up, the Mitch Rapp books for Vince Flynn's estate. And I knew Kyle before I was even an author. Uh, we both had family. His dad was in the FBI and my dad's best friend was like a godfather to us was in the FBI. So spinning off characters, absolutely. Nicholas is one. Uh, a lot of people want to see me bring the Athena Project back, which is the all-female Delta Force team. So be careful what you wish for, John, because I always said I needed more time. And now we're in lockdown. Guess what? I got nothing but. I got nothing yep. but time. Right, so so we, if two I books a year now, Brad. Well, if I don't come out of this with two books, shame on me. Because I get to look back on this time in the pandemic and I can, I can become a better husband, better father, and I can crank out a second book. If I don't, if I fail on any of those, I've let myself down. So I think it's probably safe bet that you're going to get a second book from me out of this. All right. Fantastic. We talked about this a little bit before we went on the air, but what are the chances of a Harvath movie or TV show? So great question. So right before kind of like late fall, we had, I think late fall, early winter, we had one of the top producers in Hollywood come to us and say, love these books. I got an awesome idea because Brad, you've got 19 Scott Harvath and yeah, we could do them in any order. You've got the One Athena Project. This is like buying the Marvel Universe. I mean, we could do films, we could do television, we could spin off characters. It's, it is an amazing package. And the producer was fantastic. Done some amazing deals, been recognized with Oscar nominations and all this kind of stuff. And I said, okay, well, you and I both know that the big thing is the director. 
And he said, well, who do you want as the director, Brad? I said, I get to pick. And he goes, yeah. And I said, well, who are you looking at? He goes, well, here's my top three. And his number one guy was the guy I want. And I said, you can really get this guy? He says, what are you doing tomorrow at two o'clock? I'll get him on the phone. And I had a talk with this director. I love this guy's stuff. I guarantee you, John, you, Anthony, everybody at Salt, everybody's watching has seen this director's work. And I get on the phone with him. He's like, Brad, longtime fan. I love the Scott Harvat. Da, 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 da. And it just, it's worked out great. So what we're trying to do now is to get all the pieces lined up. I can't say who the director or the producer is and that kind of stuff because they want to make the big splashy press announcement and be the first ones out of the gate and into production as soon as COVID disappears or we go overseas to shoot someplace where there's no COVID. So that's the one big thing we're working on now is putting the writers together and all this kind of stuff so that everything is in place. So when the financing drops in, either we go to someplace like a New Zealand and start shooting or the minute California fully opens up for my books are so international, we could go anywhere. We go to Iceland and shoot right. one of the books if we wanted to. So we're really, and that's what they said is really the blessing of my books is that we don't have to let COVID dictate to us. We can let the books dictate where we go and when we start. So fingers crossed, we'll, we'll find a place that we can go to work soon. All right. Well, good news for Scott Harvath fans. Um, mm -hmm. So you talked about how, from a topical perspective, you've pivoted a little bit from focusing on Islamic terrorism to focusing on things like Russia, Crimea, things of that nature. If, do you see anything on the horizon that might become an increasing focus of yours? There is a specific question about the sort of domestic threats as well, the, the rise of domestic uh, militia groups and, and social unrest is taking place in the country. But generally, where do you see maybe the, uh, where the puck is moving in terms of your storylines? Well, that's a great, that's always my favorite Gretzky uh, quote, which is don't go to where the puck is, skate to where the puck's going to be, which is, which is precisely what I like to do. Um, listen, I think we've got a lot of problems that have gone way too long unaddressed with China. Uh, but I think that as tensions rise with China, there's a chance for a mistake to happen, whether that's in the South China Sea, who knows? Uh, we have a lot of influence operations that are happening right now with China and Russia trying to exploit all the cultural and political divisions in the United States right now. And one of the things that I, I complain the most about is how many Americans get their news from Facebook, because you're not really getting the news. You are siloing yourself in areas where you feel comfortable. And so you're going to places within Facebook where you are getting your beliefs reinforced, not challenged. And the Russians and the Chinese know that, and they are exploiting that. So they're going in where people feel comfortable and unchallenged, and they're giving them bogus information and trying to manipulate them. So it's a big problem there. I don't know how you spin that into a thriller, but I am concerned with what happens. Uh, you know, I can't even, I, I'm really good, John. I pride myself on being able to peer over the horizon and tell you what's going to happen next. COVID has kind of wobbled my radar a little bit because a lot's going to depend on, you know, is there a vaccine? Does it burn out? How bad do things get? And we've also got a pretty major election coming up in November, which is going to impact what certain adversarial powers are going to feel good doing. So China and Russia are going to feel comfortable doing certain things under a Biden administration or under a Trump administration. And that's the one item that is just kind of hanging out there. And I don't know how that ball's gonna come over the plate. It's gonna be a little outside, right down the middle. I'm still trying to focus in. Ask me again in 45 days. I'll see if I got a better answer for you. <laughs> All right, amazing. Well, Anthony, do you have a last word for Brad? You know, I know, as I mentioned earlier, Anthony's a huge fan of your books. Oh no, yeah, well, uh, I, lo I love your books. I look forward to your book, Daniel Silva's book during the summer. Uh, I think that, uh, it's phenomenal writing, Brad. I hope we can get you back on uh, when your next book comes out. And uh, I'm going to recommend it again. And I love the cover. 
probably not great to see it here on a Zoom call, but uh, it captures everything that's inside the book and more. We wish you great success with the book. Thank you. And, uh, and I hope I get a chance to see you in a non-COVID environment, hopefully somewhere in Nashville where we can listen to some great music and get a beer together. I love it. Sounds like a plan. All right. God bless you, sir. Have a great, you too. Have great success with the book and we'll see you soon. Thanks, Anthony.